0: What I tell people is that we're not having a conversation about death and dying. We're having a conversation about living. And there's a lot of living up to the point of death and dying. So you don't have to think about it as how do you want to die? Think about it as how do you want to live up until then?
1: It's Dr. Nadine, and welcome to another episode of Health Raisers. Today, we are continuing our conversations for social health, caring for others. Now, let's turn to caring for our loved ones as they navigate the healthcare system. My guest is Margaret Fitzpatrick, critical care nurse and nurse anesthetist with over 20 years of experience. She is the author of Getting the Best Care. She wrote this book to help us, as she puts it, Rescue Our Loved Ones from the Healthcare Conveyor Belt, a very timely book for these challenging times. And don't forget to share with anyone you think needs this message. Please enjoy. Margaret, welcome to the show. I would love to get started with what you think in all of your experience, with your work and with your family members that you provided so well in the book, what does the phrase best care mean to you?
0: Well, thank you, Nadine. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Um, For me, getting the best care is something that is very individual. It's not something that you can use a checklist and say, if you have these things, then that means you're getting the best care because the best care for me might be very different than what it is for you. And to me, it's something that needs to be based on each person's individual goals for their life and the values that they have. So I can't say that in terms of healthcare, if I look at your experience, I can't say, well, you didn't get the best... I mean, obviously, there are drastic and outlying situations where anyone could identify it as being not the best care. But in terms of um, my book and the way that I'm viewing things, especially as people age, getting the best care is very individual and based on what their individual needs are and how they see themselves and how they want to interact with the healthcare system.
1: It's such a timely book because we are discussing so much in our culture now, what it means to age well. The idea of the lifespan versus health span. Like you said, for one person, a life well lived may have one set of values and beliefs. Another person may have very different values and beliefs. Some want to extend life as much as possible, no matter what. I'm reading an interesting article, as a matter of fact, just because we got before we got on this interview about someone who's saying that he really wants his life to be 75 years and that's enough. It was so interesting because he's talking more about quality versus quantity. The problem becomes, though, in the healthcare system, right? Mm -hmm. We have done such a wonderful job at extending life and Maybe if you look at it in a different way, postponing death, these conversations become more important to have with loved ones before we get to that moment where it's very fraught and emotions are high and (laughs) opinions differ, especially if we're talking about siblings and how to handle critical decision-making, medical procedures to have or not to have. Why did you decide to write the book? What was the problem that you felt compelled to solve by writing your book? Well,
0: for over 25 years, I've been a critical care nurse. And um, that means working in intensive care units. I was a trauma nurse specialist in the emergency room at a large um, trauma center. And then I went to school and got a master's degree in anesthesia. And so that brought me into uh, the operating room. But another part of that was uh, being responsible for responding to all of the emergency codes in the hospital. So, you know, people see on TV, they announce code blue and everyone goes running. And so I was part of that team and I would be responsible for the airway in terms of that means if the person isn't breathing, I'm putting in a breathing tube and and frequently helping to manage that critical situation. So after doing that for a number of years, it became clear to me that in most cases, we're not really helping that person that we're responding to that emergency code. And if the goal is that person being discharged from the hospital in a reasonable state of health or with a reasonable expectation of being able to return to their life, I was not seeing that as being really what happened. Obviously, there are situations where, you know, it's a a younger person or someone who doesn't have multiple medical problems and had, for whatever reason, uh, an uh, emergency where their heart or their breathing wasn't sustaining life. And we come in and intervene, turn that situation around. And after being in the hospital, they recover. But in reality, the vast majority of the codes that I was responding to was for people of advanced age and when I say that, again, that can be different for different people. Um, somebody at 70 may not seem to be very old. And and another person at 70 may have multiple medical problems and is physiologically very old. So what I was seeing was people over 70 who had multiple medical problems, diabetes, uh, kidney failure, heart failure, Things that had been causing them medical problems and health problems and limiting their living for a number of years, and so when that person has a code situation in the hospital, we can get the heart rate. We can we can get the heart started again. Uh, we have multiple uh, tools at our disposal from drugs to machines and everything else, and I can put in the breathing tube and manage that. But having that person wake up and return to their life in any degree that would resemble their life prior is um, very small, statistically. It, you know, I think statistically, we're at about a twenty percent survival rate if you do you know CPR and you have the um, defibrillator and all of that. But for someone who is over the age of seventy with multiple medical problems, the likelihood that they will leave the hospital and you know have rehab and return to a life is less than 5%. It's really like 1%. It is negligible, the people that will return to life. And so what was happening was we would code that person, put them on the breathing machine. They're in the ICU. Later that day or that week, they're going to code again. And we'll do it again. And this can happen three, four times before we just can't get the heart restarted. And so that's what formally ends their life. But we have used a lot of resources in doing that. And we have not helped that person or that family. I mean, think of that, going through that, you're sitting at your you know, mother or father's bedside and you're going through one, two, three code situations and all this up and down. And, oh, they have them back. And, and we haven't helped anybody.
1: So my question is, you, in your work, have seen this firsthand And then you have patients, family members who don't have this internal, you know, peek behind the curtain perspective. Mm -hmm. So... How do you see bridging that gap?
0: Too often, again, this experience in the hospital where we're asking family members in the midst of a hurricane, Mm -hmm. do you want an umbrella? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm So their loved one is maybe teetering on the edge of having their heart failing or their breathing not sustaining life. And everyone's upset, as you said. And we're asking them. I've actually heard physicians say do you want us to bring him back? And I I, I I oh
1: my goodness. I just want to
0: pass out on the floor because that's not the question. Who's gonna say no? What they're hearing us say is, do you want him to live or do you want him to die? Oh god. And that's not the question. And that's why this discussion needs to happen years earlier. The disconnect is that we're not even dealing it with it when the person comes into the hospital. But coming into the hospital, it's too late. They're coming in for a problem. We need to deal with this when you've been diagnosed with kidney failure. We need to let you know your kidneys have failed. You're going to start dialysis if you so choose. Likely, you that's about a five-year um, process um, for people. Now, Granted, there are people who are on dialysis for ten years, but in general, if you take the whole you know scheme of things, living on dialysis, you have about a five-year um, life expectancy. What do you want us to do as more problems come up? Let me talk to you about that. If you now develop heart failure, you know, and have those kinds of conversations, letting people know that. You're not going to get better you know. if your kidneys fail. They're failed. Dialysis, we can do that. And I am all for people using whatever means they want to to live as long as they possibly want to. But they need to do it with the knowledge that it comes at a price. And there's a lot of suffering
1: that can come with it. When you say we, who's we? Who's on the team? Who needs to be having that discussion? Everybody.
0: Everyone who deals with someone as a patient needs to have that conversation, but families also need to have it. They just don't realize that they need to have it. You know, oh, you know, mom, this is a pretty serious diagnosis, whatever it is. It seems like it's causing more and more problems. Where, how far do you want to go with this? We will support you in this, but. They're recommending that you have a CAT scan now to investigate whatever. Do you want to do that? Or do we want to ask, how will that change the treatment that I'm getting? Because we have a million tests. You know, as you know, we can test all day long, all night long. Mm -hmm. Many times those tests are not going to change the course of treatment. Many times it's just we're getting information because we have the ability to get information. And we're just backing up a diagnosis that we already know, you know, so which is fine if people want to do that, but it comes at a financial cost and it comes at another cost to people, especially as they age, where they become just persistent patients and they're viewing themselves differently as opposed Mm -hmm. to viewing themselves as active, relevant actors in their lives. They are now passive to what is being recommended to them.
1: That's a really, really good subtle point. So not only, well, two things I heard. The first thing is that these tests and new diagnoses do, become a domino effect type series of events because so you get a a new diagnosis from the previous diagnosis because you went down the lane of doing another test and it's like okay well what am I going to do with that and what's the next step and usually it's to do something whether it's to take medication or have a surgery uh, an outpatient or an inpatient procedure so the morbidity starts to accumulate the more you go down this road and then something you said really resonated with me where something we don't think about where the shift the mental and emotional toll toll the shift in how the person the patient the patient the your loved one begins to see themselves and if they become these passive people who are just planning how to take their medication during the day and how to eat around taking the med- medication. When can they go to sleep? When can they drink this? When they can't drink? When can they walk? When can't they walk? That's got to be a very challenging. And I don't know if debilitating is the right way to say it might be too dramatic. But I can't think of another way to put it, but I don't see how that would make you feel the most alive.
0: Right. Or the most empowered,
1: you know. Right. With a sense of purpose too. If it's, I'm going to the doctor on this day, I need a ride there and it's going to take this many hours. And when I come back, I mean, your life is just consumed with one appointment after another.
0: And Right. Specialist after specialist after Mm -hmm. specialist. It's interesting because something that I, I recommend to people is to say, because it's hard to know where do you draw the line you know yes. it just it just keeps going and it, it, it that's why having a clear idea of how you want to live your life in the time of life that you are and and always be seeing things through that lens because obviously the choices that you make when you're you know 35 and you have four small children are going to yes. be very different mm-hmm. than when you're 85 mm-hmm. And your values are going to be different.
1: Mm -hmm. How you want
0: your life to be is going to be different. It's not that you're giving up at any point. It's not that you value your life less. It's that you have an understanding of where you are. And so we need to think about these things before we get to that point. Everyone talks about it. I'm kind of jumping around, but people seem to hear this through the lens of... um, you know, when do I want the plug pulled? You know, yeah, as if there's a moment where mm. there's a yes or no. Mm. and mm. and there's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, it very, very rarely in people's lives is that how it goes. Mm-hmm. Much more common is that process of as we age, Different things happen, mm-hmm. and you know we get high blood pressure. Okay, well, we want to treat the high blood pressure to avoid a stroke and a heart attack and disabilities that can come from that. Um, but that's not something that is one and done. You know, we we get the medication, and we have to be aware of how this is affecting our lives, and is it effective, and what can we do about that. And then maybe there's another diagnosis. Uh, very common now. We're dealing with seems so many people have diabetes. Mm-hmm. So now I get that diagnosis, and I'm adding more medication. Okay, that's reasonable because we want to control that. But you know, you can see how, and then you know, now you're in your seventies, and maybe you have a heart attack. You know, and there's more things happening. So there's not a there's not a certain point where we're making this decision. We're gathering things as we go. But there are certain diagnoses that are important to look at and start making clear decisions and making them clear to your family and to your physicians. And those can include, well, like I talk about in the book, I have a someone I talk about, Mr. Johnson, I call him, who had lung cancer that was advanced lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And you know he was a man. I, I can see him, a very dignified man with loving family, and comes to the hospital knowing he had. And he also had. I don't know if he had diabetes. Um, I know that he had heart disease. You know he had more problems, but the stage four lung cancer was a was enough of a problem. Yeah. So he comes to the hospital um, with difficulty breathing something to be expected in advanced lung cancer ends up in the ICU. The difficulty breathing turns into, does he need to be on the ventilator? So now I'm putting him on the ventilator. Well, there's no happy ending to that story. Mm-hmm. You know, he has advanced lung cancer. He's on a ventilator. We're not going to be able to get him off the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he later did um, code more than once and and did die he didn't leave the hospital but his loving family was stuck in this situation of well he's having difficulty breathing am I going to say don't put him on the ventilator you know this is a problem this needed to be discussed when the when the lung cancer was diagnosed and and at intervals as you're getting treatment to say you know, you're at stage four, we're going to do as much as you want us to do. But the reality is, you're going to have these symptoms that are going to get worse. Do you want to be on a ventilator? Let's talk to your family. And then you talk about palliative care and hospice, you know, in those situations.
1: You phrase it very well. I mean, I'm a very visual person, and the way you phrased it on your in your book is rescue your loved one from the healthcare conveyor belt, and that's what it sounds like you're describing here with that example with Mr. Johnson. But then I'm putting myself in a family member's place, like in a in a really practical sense. Who's going to the who with him to his various? physician's appointments who's asking those difficult questions who's asking for options because what if the doctor is saying giving a specific said this is usually how lung cancer goes or you know whatever and would that doctor have said we may be faced with this situation and you have this option and you have this option well what if what if we do advance through the ventilator then What what can we do alternatively and so that everyone is on the same page and able to ask all of the questions and and paint out different scenarios? How can a family member and the person another thing I really liked about your book, you talked about this with your mom a lot, is that the patient should also feel empowered not just a passive kind of like they're almost watching a play of their own Mm -hmm. life and they're not Mm -hmm. involved. How can we put everyone on the same page so everyone understands and talks about different things to think about as much as possible? Like you can't predict everything, but at least as much as possible so that you don't think, when you get to the hospital and they say, well, we've got to put him on the ventilator. Now he can't breathe. My reaction as a daughter would be, well, I don't want him to suffocate. Of course we have to put him on a ventilator. Yes. But what could have been a different option? How could I have said to myself, well, dad is going to be comfortable when, if they don't put him on the ventilator, but give him, I don't know, morphine so that he can relax.
0: Well, and I think for Mr. Johnson, where we failed him was at his diagnosis and every appointment after that, because recommending hospice to somebody like Mr. Johnson um, is almost a no-brainer because you know that this man in his late 70s with his multiple medical problems and stage four lung cancer is not going to survive this. Every physician knows that, that this is not going to be if you count a win, meaning that you're going to defeat this cancer and he's going to mm. live another 10 years, it's not going to happen. And so we need to talk to the patient and let the patient know because as we age, I, I most people, in my experience, get, get wisdom about life. They have less life ahead of them than they have behind them. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to suffer and they don't want to die in the hospital. But that needs to be something that they feel free to share, not only with their doctor, but with their family. Because (laughs) large loving families can be a blessing and a curse in these times, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the daughter or the sister comes in from Washington and the brother comes up from... Alabama and, you know, and everyone is very emotional. Those things needed to be kind of laid out in the months and years ahead of time to say, I'm letting you know, this is what I want. I don't want to go into the hospital. And if you have a service like hospice, and if it's working well, because you need everybody to be doing their job well... Mm -hmm. Um, You will have a nurse who's coming to visit you once a week, who's monitoring your symptoms and seeing, okay, you're having some trouble breathing, maybe get some oxygen um, and then start different medications. But also to let you know that um, you are going to be feeling things that are not comfortable, possibly, if you don't want to, because we can give you a lot of different things. You may not be awake, so you get to make these choices. Is it more important for you to be awake and interacting with your family, or is it more important to you to be comfortable, which means that you might be sleeping a lot? You know you don't necessarily need to be suffering
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, We can give you medication, but it might make you sleep more mm-hmm. um. And that might change as your disease, you know, goes on. And even in the week before you die, you may decide, okay, I've been awake enough and now I need to have more sleep. And you know, it just needs to be a constant evolving situation. And I think if people are prepared ahead of time, the family will be able to deal with it well. Unfortunately. Because we are so um, driven by um, hospitals and doctors and that whole system that's very familiar to us, we look to that system to start the conversations. And it's just not going to happen. It's just, mm. not, it's just not built that way. There are obviously fantastic physicians who are very in tune with it, but
1: they're few and far between in my experience. So this is patient advocacy. This is advocating for yourself. And another thing I'm hearing and what you're talking about, and I kind of where I want to segue into hearing more about your journey with your mom, is what you, what I think of as a result of having these conversations, which is to, as you say, have less stress as you protect your loved one from suffering. So you're not only protecting your loved one from suffering, you're also protecting yourself and your family members f- from suffering. And perhaps I would even dare to surmise perhaps your modeling for Genera- for other generations. So if I'm in this position and I'm having these conversations with my mom and we're normalizing being able to have really difficult conversations, then my daughters are going to see this. And then we can more easily have difficult conversations um, going forward. So how did your mom have the wherewithal to have these difficult conversations with you so that you knew what I was reading as you described the various scenarios when you would take her, you didn't have to suffer yourself emotionally, mentally, because this is your mom, to go, well, I have to make a guess as to what mom was, and I don't want to lose my mom, so I'm going all to, the, all the other things that go along with that. So how did that happen for you?
0: Yeah, that's very interesting Nadine. My mother was a, an extraordinary person in a lot of different ways. Um and just having 16 children was a pretty extraordinary thing. <laughs> <laughs> um and but also uh, she had a lot of friends throughout her life. Um and a, close group of women that she would that they raised their children at the same time they went to the same church you know they knew each other for 40 50 60 years some of them and she saw you know as you age and she lived to be 99 years old all of those people died um including my father uh, died um nine years before my mother did And so she visited her friends in the hospital. She visited her friends in nursing homes. She was very aware. She was obviously in very good health for um, her whole life, really. Um, But she was very aware of things that happen and how people get kind of put on that conveyor belt and having more and more tests and more and more um, interventions. And so, she she was very clear that she never she always wanted to live at home, and um, and that she didn't she wanted to stay out of the hospital. So certain things happen that prevent that, like breaking a hip. You know, in her nineties, she's going to the hospital. Um, but my experience in the hospital, especially with older people um, told me that we needed to be with her and having a large family made it easier. So someone needed to be with her all the time to keep her from being confused and, and getting delirium. Um, I knew to say no to a catheter, um, because I didn't want her to have a urinary tract infection. And, um, those things, you know, she wouldn't have known to, to say no to, but I knew how to avoid certain complications. But also I knew that when they recommend now you go for rehab, you know, which is essentially in a nursing home, um, I knew that her first priority was never to be in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And we had made her that promise. Mm-hmm. And so I we explored, okay, she needs to go home. With rehab at home, you know, and making those arrangements. Um, so that started. I'm sorry, I'm doing this kind of out of order, but okay. the conversation really started when she was diagnosed with um, atrial fibrillation, mm-hmm. um, which is a common heart arrhythmia mm-hmm. that people get as they age. and um and making the decision. Whether or not to take a blood thinner, you know, which is pretty standard. Yeah. And I explained to her, okay, well, this is standard operating procedure. But at that time, the the medication that she would have had would have required regular blood testing, you know, regular getting her her blood drawn to see whether her level was too high or too low. And she said, "Oh no, absolutely not." I'm not going to be going in for blood tests. And so that meant no thank you to that medication. Um, because she kind of knew instinctively, I'm going to get a blood test. Something's going to be wrong. Yes.
1: yes.
0: <laughs> and now I'm going to end up in the emergency room,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, which I saw all the time when I was an ER nurse. People coming in on that medication who were mm-hmm. given... You know, getting emergent calls from their physicians saying, go to the emergency room, your levels are way too high, Mm. and you're at risk for bleeding. And now they're in the hospital. And then very frequently, they do get that delirium. Now they're confused. Do they fall in the hospital? You know, and you just get on that
1: conveyor belt of problems and solutions. And And all of the specialists coming in because that's what happens, you know? So, oh, let's get a GI consult and let's get, you know, an ortho to come in and consult on this. Oh, uh, we need ID. We need infectious diseases to come. And then it just accumulates and unfortunately they're not they don't have time to it's not like the whole team can how would you coordinate that the whole team for a particular patient to come together and sit down and have a discussion there isn't time
0: there I mean right I mean honestly as advanced as we are there is not time to give good care in the hospital Mm. I mean it's it's sad and But any it seems like anyone who's gone through a situation with a loved one who's been ill or had an accident or something like that, they're dissatisfied at the end. You know, when you go through what was your experience, they're very often very dissatisfied. And so if it's not going to improve, if you're in your 90s and going to the hospital isn't going to improve your, your life. Maybe don't go to the hospital. Now you break a hip going to the hospital is going to improve your life because that's the only way to get that hip Mm -hmm. fixed. Mm -hmm. But you need to get out in, in my experience, you need to get out as soon as possible and into an environment that's more familiar to you.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And, um, And really assess because, Nadine, so many people, (laughs) I've done so many surgeries given the anesthesia for people who are in their 80s or 90s who break a hip who have advanced dementia. And um, obviously, you want to fix that hip because it's painful. So you don't want this person in pain. But do they need to stay in the hospital after that? you know, for an extended period of time and, and then go into rehab when their major problem is this advanced dementia, which is going to end their life. You know, um, we need to look at things in a more, you know, it goes back to that individual. Who is this individual? Where is this individual in her life? And how can we, do things that are going to help this person live the best possible life right now. Very different if this person is 30, you know, than if this person is 90.
1: I have a couple of um, observations here. Um, Well, One observation, one question. So one of the observations is um, that there are, when we talk about individuality, we can actually even go a step further because people age differently. Mm -hmm. A 75-year-old, this 75-year-old, as you mentioned before, is not necessarily going to look like the next 75-year-old because there are different definitions of aging, whether it's Mm -hmm. cellular, biological aging, social aging, psychological aging. So we experience life as different like even though i look a lot like my mom and even though there there are genetics involved there are epigenetic factors there's environment. there's different social circumstances so many things that make one life very different than the other that's kind of the first observation so no judgment on you know if someone is thinks that Or doesn't just think that 80-year-old person is so vibrant that, you know, there are so many factors that may make that person more vibrant versus another 80-year-old where there are so many comorbidities that they're really living a painful uh, Mm -hmm. life full of chronic debilitating diseases, and all of the things that go along with that, the visits to the doctors, we talked about the medications, the side effects of the medications, then which require the next medication. The other thing um, that I wonder is a person in the hospital to kind of take us back where, where we talk about all the different, you know, cooks in the kitchen coming and, and, and surveying uh, the patient. Can the hospitalist be a good bridge? Who could be the bridge for a patient to say or the family to say, is there a point person who could synthesize this information for me? Isn't that the hospitalist's role? Sure. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, You know, it's, it's a problem because and if we're talking still about people of advanced age, people want their own doctor. And a hospitalist is a new face now.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. and and some, obviously, it's like everything. Some are very, very good at that, at very good at making that connection with the family, very good at um, sharing their experience and helping figure out what does this family want and coordinating things. Mm-hmm. But honestly, you know, again, you're talking about someone who is very busy and which is why i encourage people to do this work in the family before they come into the hospital and have an understanding when you get the diagnosis of alzheimer's what that means and and maybe now okay so mom has is on dialysis now we know she has alzheimer's and it's you know progressing have the conversation with the doctor about maybe we don't need to go into the hospital if she has chest pain. Not that we're making the decision that her life needs to end, but making the decision that a person with Alzheimer's going into the hospital is a terrifying situation. They don't know what's going on. It's very difficult to maintain their Cognitive
1: stability, let alone somebody who doesn't have dementia. I, in particular, think, even though if I were to go into the hospital right now, I'd be scared. I mean, there's uncertainty. You don't know, you're not in control of yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kind of underestimate the hospital environment, too. Oh, all of those artificial fluorescent lights. You're being poked and prodded. You can't sleep continuously because people come in to check, you know, your vital signs in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. So there. So imagine even for a person who doesn't have dementia, how all of that could be just extremely challenging, mm-hmm. let alone you're already confused chronically. Yeah. And
0: and even i mean i talk about in the book that after the age of 70 and again it's very it's it's variable it can happen much younger delirium is something that is extremely common when people go into the hospital as they age and it's very underdiagnosed um because people think of delirium as the person kind of being wild and disoriented and throwing things, maybe fighting, but more commonly is a quiet delirium where they're withdrawing and people aren't aware that they're having this disconnect. And it can be something, especially for someone who has the beginnings of dementia or other problems, where they don't recover their cognitive function after they go home. So that's why as people age going into the hospital needs to be a real calculus. Is this going to the risk benefit?
1: Mm-hmm. Where is
0: the needle gonna fall? Mm-hmm. Um obviously as I say, you know the the joke I made to my mother was you'll never have to go to the hospital again unless you break a bone or have another baby. <laughs> <laughs> because neither of those things I want to handle at home. <laughs> but it was true because I knew that she would be so much worse off going into the hospital or staying in the hospital after her diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, which of course they were, everyone was horrified. What do you mean you're going home? It was like, well, (laughs) we're going to see your doctor. You know, this is not going to help her to be here. Now it's going back to the thing of it being individual. I also talk in the book about my brother, Who had advanced a multiple sclerosis. And he, if you saw him, if you walked into his room, he lived in a continuing care facility, but he was in the skilled nursing part, and you saw him, which, and didn't know him, you would think, oh my God, this man is completely debilitated Um, and probably not cognitively intact. He was the smartest sharpest mind I've ever known in my life up until the day he died but he was very physically debilitated he couldn't dress himself because of this multiple sclerosis now he had a faulty heart valve and um, you know he had an aortic sclerosis and so that can lead to sudden death and His doctor told him he had the option of having the less invasive replace, you know, repair, replacement of the aortic valve. Now, if I'm just looking at a book reading about this patient, I'm saying, no, don't do it. Don't go into the hospital and have the surgery. You have enough problems. (laughs) And the likelihood that this is going to extend your life is not great. But Mike was. Very capable of making his own decisions. And um, he very much wanted anything that had the possibility of helping his energy level or extending his life. So he absolutely wanted that surgery and had it. And it didn't have the desired effect of increasing his energy. But it did have the effect of he made that decision He was driving the bus of his life, you know, and that was totally appropriate. And I I mean, I flew out to where he lived and, you know, went with him and um, saw him through that because that's what he wanted. Now, if that had been my mother in that situation, she wouldn't have wanted that for a million dollars. So it's very different just depending on the person's, you know, outlook and what their philosophy is.
1: So uh, there's no one size fits all. There's no recipe. That's why this is something that needs to be. And it's not a one and done conversation. It's a continuing, evolving conversation um, between doctor, patient, family members, all together working as a team. Yes.
0: Right. And I think, like you say, that's so true. It's an evolving, ongoing thing, as is life. And as you get more, another diagnosis, you need to check in again and, and ask the doctor, you know, realistically, what does this mean? And if something's recommended, realistically, how is this going to help me? And the million dollar question that I tell people to ask, if if I were your sister or your mother, with my with my you know medical situation, my age, would you recommend I do this?
1: That's a great way to phrase it.
0: And now A, you're hoping they'll answer truthfully, but no matter what their answer is, that's not necessarily a prescription for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had I did a surgery of a, a mastectomy on a woman who was in her late 80s who had Advanced dementia, who had to have a um, her healthcare power of attorney signed for the surgery. Her healthcare power of attorney was her son, who was a physician. So it's not necessarily that whatever the physician may say. Sure, I think you should have it because that's just how that person operates. But it's just it is a interesting, you know, thing to put to a. To a doctor when they're recommending something to kind of say, oh, let's look at it from that lens as opposed to your doctor lens, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with your knowledge of what's going on there. There is just a, an amazing book that I would recommend, and I'm sure you've read it, uh, Being Mortal. Uh, Not by yet. Tw- You're the
1: second person oh. to recommend it, though. hmm
0: it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, um, Gawande is the doctor's name. He's written a number of books. I, he's just an unbelievable person. That book is amazing. And he talks about, and I think I talk about it in my book too, when p- a person has cancer and they've gone through radiation and they've gone through different rounds of chemo. And now that that latest round of chemo did not help so very frequently a physician will say well the next thing is you know this other chemotherapy and the question is well is that going to help me and the answer is well this has been shown to be the thing that extends people's you know life obviously For like we two know months.
1: exactly <laughs> and, and you're going to be in pain <laughs> well that's
0: the, and mm-hmm. see that's the piece that's never filled in and so that's the question that I want to give people is when that next thing is recommended is to say, what is that going to buy me at what cost? Mm -hmm. So if that's going to, if you're saying that studies have shown this Mm -hmm. is the thing that is our last chance to get you more life, what's the best case on that? And frequently the answer, if the physician knows the research is two, three months. Okay so i'm going to be going somewhere for these last two or three months of my life getting this and taking you know a jar full of medication to counteract the side effects of this Is that what I
1: want? Yeah, and I suppose there, again, there's there's so many nuances to these conversations, right? So it could also be, you could look at it, if I play devil's advocate, as, well, it'll buy me two more months, and I want to be here for these two more months, no matter what. And my kids want me here, no matter what, too, right? And
0: Nadine, I'll pick you up and drive you to go get that therapy, (laughs) if that's your thinking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you need to have that information,
1: exactly that's what so that's what i'm hearing you say that you need this is informed as much as possible mm-hmm. so that you can feel as the person who's uh who, as the patient mm-hmm. and as the family members that you are making an informed decision with as much information as you can because there we're all people there are lots of mm-hmm. emotions involved
0: yeah and there are a lot of choices mm. and um and, and absolutely i i would never tell someone not to have a therapy or whatever I mean, if it's going to buy you 24 hours whatever mm-hmm. you know um i have another story of when my brother eventually did go into the hospital it was during covid and um, he was having um, what turned out to be a bowel obstruction again, that's something that terrible. you need to go into the hospital.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He was in a different city, um you know, on the phone with people trying to manage things, and um he was very weak from his multiple sclerosis. He couldn't mm-hmm. in the when I was talking to him when he was in the emergency room, they had to hold the phone for him well, so. I am get making arrangements to, to fly there and I get a call the morning saying he coded the night before. And the physician that was talking to me, we found out he didn't even have a nasogastric tube. So for your listeners, when someone has a bowel obstruction, fluid and things start to build up in the stomach. and that's why they put in that tube in the person's nose that drains the stomach. You know, If you don't have that and you're laid flat, all of that has the risk of coming up and going into your lungs. And that's what happened. Um, so they coded him and he was in the ICU and I was on my way there. And um, he was still alive when we got there. And the ICU doctor said, "Well, you know, we obviously need to talk about um, end of life. You know, it, it, taking him off the ventilator." And um, I, I was his healthcare power of attorney, and I said, "I understand what you're saying because I've had this conversation with hundreds of families, but that's not what he would want." Because this was the brother who went in for his aortic valve change. This was not another family member. I would say, absolutely, we're going to take, you know, I've done that too. But this man wants every second of life that he can have. We have no reason to believe he's in pain, you know. Um, we need to honor that. And it was a knockdown, drag out fight. It was kind of like the opposite situation. You know, where usually it's the family saying, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's, and I tried to tell this doctor, I understand, I wrote a book about this. Mm -hmm, I know mm -hmm. what you're saying. Mm -hmm, I know mm -hmm. he's going to die. I know there's nothing we can do about that, but we are not taking him off the ventilator because I am honoring what he specifically wanted for his life and you know so i mean even if you have these clear things it, it it you really do need a um energetic advocate sometimes you know to make sure that but none of it and, and so i felt like even up to his last moment of life he was directing his care even though he was unconscious um because he had made it very clear to me over many conversations over the years and and the decisions that he had made. Um, So if you want to always be in charge of your life and being the person who's making the decisions, even should you get dementia and you no longer can do that, you need to have these conversations with your family and your physician now. And it, maybe it is that I want every last moment and bring on everything you got. I want, you know, and, and wonderful. We will absolutely do that. But for most people, that's not what it's going to be. Mm-hmm.
1: And you need mm-hmm. to tell people. Wow. Margaret, this has been a wonderful and difficult conversation, but you've definitely got me doing a lot of thinking and and ways that I can be braver in my own life too, and start mm-hmm. having some important Ooh. conversations. Yeah, and I'm going to turn the microphone over to you for a moment. I wonder if you have a question for me.
0: I, well, I do. I have. Uh, I would like to know what led you to this um, part of your career, um, given your training and everything you've done to. Achieve the things you've achieved.
1: The career switch, you mean? Yes, yes. I was five when I said I wanted to be a doctor. I remember I was 13 and my uncle who had lived with us, my maternal uncle, was either going to medical school or had graduated. No, we were at his, it was a medical school graduation. And so we were oh. celebrating. And I announced how proud I was of him because he was my mentor. Um, and I said, I want to follow in your footsteps. So I was like really drawing the line in the sand there, announcing it out loud. This is what I'm going to do. Now, my intention was as corny as it sounds to help people. mm mm-hmm. I, I am. I am a servant. That mm-hmm. is really something, and a nurturer. That is the very strong. My strengths. Those are my strengths. A couple of my strengths. What your vision is, naively, not having been in that environment, not really going through it, and what the reality becomes when you're actually practicing—that's what's called a medical practice—did mm-hmm. not align for me. So i had I had to change and make the decision that practicing medicine was not sustainable for me, and that instead, there was another path for me to continue to serve in order to maintain my integrity and my vision and and to honor all of the things i've valued and believed in my life i'm not i'm not simply made to be a career person mm. it's important to me yes yeah. to contribute sure. but it was also extremely important to me to be really involved in family and to be the best mother I could be and the best wife I could be, because that nurturing part of me needed that in my personal life too. Mm-hmm. And medicine was compromising that for me. And so it just simply was not sustainable. I was very, very miserable. And so I've since found ways and I'm evolving because we do, we change, we learn, as you so well said earlier. And so it became how. What's a different path that I can take? How can I show up, contribute, and do the work I feel really passionate about and, and that's aligned to my beliefs and values? And I don't have to compromise completely my personal life. And so that's how I found my way to doing this work. Because I really believe that I'm serving in a very necessary and unique way right yeah. now. And I'm very proud. Yeah, that's amazing. That's wonderful.
0: And I applaud your ability to make that switch because being a physician, that process is so arduous and um, such an investment emotionally, physically, financially, um, that to have that self-knowledge and courage to say, "Mm, yeah, but this is not fulfilling These important aspects of who I am. I think that's
1: wonderful. Thank you, Margaret. The last question I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest, what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy?
0: I remember um, you must have written me that question. And I was thinking about that. um, And it kind of goes back to the book in terms of it is an individual thing. And I think it's the ability to live your life on a daily basis the way that you want to, you know, to to be able to do the things that everyone has limitations. And so within your limitations, to not to be stopped by health issues that pop up, to be able to live your best life in the fullest way possible. And that's mental health as well as physical health, you know. Um, and I know your philosophy. I can imagine is that those are very much a part of the same thing. It's there's no there's no division where mental health ends connected. and physical health starts. Both all of it figures in and how you live your life on a daily basis. And are you being the person that you want to be? That you feel that you want to be? you know, if you're, not, if you're not getting sleep, if you're not um, having the energy, if your energy is drained because you're not eating properly or that sort of thing, then you're likely not the person that you would sit down and say, this is who I want to be. And so maybe you're not healthy. Maybe there are things you can do to be more healthy that's going to lead you to be your best self.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for my mm-hmm. esteemed guest and You've been so warm, so kind, so generous with your time, Um, especially tackling such a deep subject with me. I'm very grateful to Margaret Fitzpatrick, who wrote the book you must read and pass out to everyone you know. It's really important. Getting the best care. Rescue your loved one from the healthcare conveyor belt. You'll be happy because you'll have less stress as you protect your loved one from suffering. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you
0: so much, Nadine.
1: Welcome to Health Raisers. Health Raisers don't just survive, together, we thrive. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. thrive in community.
0: We are not in isolation from one another. We are completely interconnected and interdependent. Community is not one group serving another. or not even everybody working together. It's seeing the good in yourself within community and seeing the good
1: of the others within the community. It doesn't take anything away from me to be able to encourage somebody else mm. and vice versa. We thrive in our bodies. My value is that I want to age with strength and be
0: able to have the most quality of life for the longest amount of time. That's my driver. You have to have an intimate relationship with yourself first and foremost, never mind your husband or your wife or partner or whatever. It starts here. So One
1: thing is it's good for our brain's physical health to get to sleep. Second. Memories consolidate. Mm-hmm.
0: It's really important to identify what makes your body function at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. The way we do that is being very sensitive to the foods we
1: eat and how we feel afterwards. We thrive in our minds. We make ourselves such low priorities that unless it's obvious, we don't take care of it ourselves. We are socially and culturally conditioned to avoid self-care, and it's wrong. Years later, lots of therapy, lots of other things, I have now learned to be able to say like, everybody doesn't have to be your friend at the same level. Um, It's certainly Mm -hmm. a quality versus quantity. (laughs) What do you want? Why do you want it? We thrive in our spirits. Fear and faith can't occupy the same frequency.
0: I am nature and nature is me. And you can't separate it. There is a power in me to choose my journey. And if I want to choose my
1: journey, I have to cultivate my soul. We thrive in our intellect. Better beats perfect every time. And so I think, I think the mistakes are beautiful because it gives us a reason to get up and push for something and grow and, and, and find a new level of ourself. Variety is important in your daily life because it's really good for your brain. And we thrive in our emotions.
0: There's something about common experience that creates a deep, loving community. So you will serve others better when you meet your own needs. You can serve from an empty vessel, but you will be angry, mm-hmm. frustrated, very unhappy and Mm -hmm. that comes through
1: in your interactions with other people. The more agreeable we are, the more likely we are to forgive. I think kindness is a way of somebody conveying to us that our dignity matters to them. Come join this health revolution. Bring your whole self to your whole life.